This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hey, welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And this is a show about topics at the intersection of business and social impact. Or, in other words, about the topics that matter most in your life and how the business and how business and pri- the private sector really affects it. On today's show, we'll be discussing the global water crisis and how innovative finance is helping bring clean drinking water and sanitation to those most in need. Well, first, we've got the global water crisis. Is it and Matt Damon? It's not Matt Damon. It is a co-founder with Matt Damon. We are welcoming Gary White, CEO and co-founder of Water.org. Welcome to the show, Gary. Oh, thank you. Good to be here with you guys. We are not disappointed that it's not Matt Damon, but we are delighted to have you. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to be here and uh, looking forward to diving into this topic. Absolutely. And and I think let's just start there. So um, help our listeners understand what it is that Water.org is trying to address. So what we're trying to address is the global water crisis uh, and sanitation because they go hand in hand and together – they uh, leave about two and a half billion people around the world without access to those basic services. And what we see is that uh, the, there is a need for kind of uh, an engineering and technology approach in some situations, but the biggest bottleneck between people and safe water and sanitation is access to affordable finance. And we address that through an innovation we call water credit, which matches uh, microfinance institutions with the water and sanitation crisis so people can get the small affordable loans that they need in order to get their own water and sanitation solution. So it's interesting because you mentioned that, yes, there's sort of there could be an engineering need, which I guess is more on the infrastructure side, you know, that, you know, do we have the water filtration systems and the piping across, you know, the city, the country, whatever that gets into your home. But what you're really talking about, and and I just want to make sure that our listeners understand this, is the amount of time that people spend gathering clean drinking water or finding a place where they can go to the bathroom. So, um, you know, help us unpack some of and paint a picture yeah. for our listeners around those issues. Yeah. yeah. So basically, when you wake up in the morning each day, nothing else matters until you can find the water that you and your family need to survive. And you don't know if you're going to have to walk miles for that and get to a dried up water hole if you're in the rural area, or if you're in the urban area, sometimes there are these public taps, but you don't know when the water is going to be turned on to those taps. And so you have this unpredictable relationship with getting access to water. And if you are always paying for this in terms of your time and uncertainty, you're not going to be able to work at a paying job. So what we see is people losing great amounts of their time, but also some of the people do spend some of their income in order to buy water from these informal vendors. The problem with that is that water costs between 10 and 15 times more per gallon than if they had a simple water connection. So all of these coping costs are a huge burden on the poor. And what we've discovered is if you can just get that small loan, say $300, you can actually connect to the public utility because the pipes are already in the ground. It's just that you don't have access to that system because you can't get over the hurdle of that connection fee. Once you get that connection fee, your price of water drops way down. And after a couple of years, you're done paying off that loan and then you're capturing all those savings or you're able to spend all that time that you were 
expending to wait and walk for water at a paying job. So it makes total sense. You know, you just set up a completely logical argument for why we should be able to increase these microfinance loans, why mm-hmm. folks should take advantage of them, the you know return on investment of time, you know, healthy water. You can imagine a ton of sort of downstream health impacts from that. Mm-hmm. What's the challenge to scaling this and how are you guys working to address it? Well, the challenge is, one, getting people to understand that there is a market there and helping, you know, break that market failure because finance hasn't been finding the poor because they don't see it as income generating. And so anytime you're trying to get uh, a financier to invest in somebody, it's usually about a business. And this is about cost savings and recapturing those coping costs. So that is a bottleneck. But what we see, and we, we've broken through that to a great degree, actually, because now you know, we've worked with about 100 microfinance institutions around the world to do these types of loans. And what we see is a 99% repayment rate. We see that 16 million people have gotten access to services this way. And we've mobilized more than $1.25 billion in capital. And we've done that with $27 million in philanthropy to kind of jumpstart this market, correct the market failure. And from that $27 million has flowed to $1.25 billion. All right, Gary, I, I need to pause there. So, can, so you said a 99% repayment rate. And what yeah. was the what was sort of the number of borrowers? So 16 million people have gotten access in this way. You know, you divide that by five and then you can, you know, the average household size is five and then you get the number of loans. Like so it's three million loans. Yeah. So it's super interesting yeah. to me because we just, just for our listeners and for you, we just came off this sort of pitch event. Students had been out in the world sourcing deals, like live potential entrepreneurs who are running their businesses. And they, they came on their behalf to sort of pitch the business. And I sat in a financial inclusion uh, room for the semifinal rounds where I was judging and I heard five different pitches of sort of these um, it wasn't microfinance or micro loans for water but you know some sort of financial inclusion play and mm-hmm. none of them were at that scale 16 million bar- borrowers or a 99% repayment rate so I just wanted to let our listeners know that like, that sounds incredible I mean is that a surprising statistic for you guys too I, I think it was initially but uh, as we've gone into this further and further, we see that it's not so surprising. And it can vary by market. Some markets have, uh, you know, an extremely high repayment rate and others slightly less. But certainly, you know, default rates that would make any bank in, in the U.S. happy. Right. Yeah. You, yeah you can't, we, the low end can't be that low if the average is 99. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the you know, the the unit economics to the user here. So it's a three, you know, you said approximately a $300 pump loan. Is that accurate? Or connection loan? Yeah, the average, uh, I think our average loan size is up around $360 now. So what is $360 to your consumers? Mm-hmm. Well, for many, that is uh, enough money to uh, pay this connection fee to the public utilities and to, you know, buy the associated piping that you need to get the water connection to your house. And I think that's the irony in this, right, that really what we're trying to do is we're not about building the infrastructure ourselves. We're about getting the whole system to tilt a little bit more in favor of the poor. So instead of those pipes just running right under the ground past the slums, 
how can the poor get access to that system? And so that loan basically gets you a water connection and gets you a, a water tariff that's extremely affordable. Um, for instance, a woman I met in the, in the Philippines, Lenaliza, she was paying about $60 every month to these water tanker trucks that would come around and sell water. And so finally she was able to get a loan and get a water connection. And her water tariff per month now, plus her loan repayment all combined, is about $10 a month. So you can see that how the savings are captured. So that's what the loan's for, or for building a toilet. You know, For about that price, you can also construct a toilet at your home. And that changes everything for you and your family in terms of convenience and safety for especially uh, young women who don't have to go out in the middle of the night to defecate. So there's this huge pent-up demand and willingness and ability to pay for these improvements because they're so valued if they can get access to the affordable finance. So the, so these individuals are paying in, to use your math, about six months of, of use of water. They're paying the cost that it would take to cover this infrastructure investment, but they don't all have it at one time. Exactly. And, and that's where yeah. the financing comes in. Right. Before right. before we sort of shift the conversation forward, could you elaborate on the point you made about the safety of, of women whether it's going, you know, out to use the restroom out of the home or to fetch water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, a couple of years back, this was really demonstrated vividly when a couple of girls who, you know, because uh, of embarrassment or dignity would not go out and defecate during the day because people could look on and see. And so they were out at night and they were raped and murdered in India because of this. So it's it's just... It's that no one should have to suffer loss of life or even the indignity of not having access to, to a toilet. And I think that's, that's the key to this as well. Certainly there are some economics in this with the water vendors, as I mentioned, but a lot of this circles around the dignity and safety issues and that, uh, you know, we, we should be giving people the opportunity to solve this crisis for their family uh, and if we can do that, not by, you know, 100 percent charity and building everybody in the world a toilet, but we can just nudge the system a bit. That's when we'll see this really taking off. And one thing that I think is important to make sure we, you know, capture here is when we're talking about these communities, the water infrastructure exists. Pipes are being run through these cities or towns that are getting water somewhere, just not to the homes. I think this sort of challenges a lot of stereotypes about access to water, where you're thinking about a place with no infrastructure whatsoever and, you know, going, you know, going to rivers for water or just not having any piping laid throughout the communities. I'm surprised to hear how large the market is of places where it exists. It doesn't it just doesn't exist into the homes yet. And that seems like really where you're focused. It is, and and certainly there are areas of the world like you're describing where, you know, they're so rural, so dispersed, and so little income that they don't have even that backbone infrastructure. And uh, in those areas, what we see oftentimes uh, water credit can work in terms of rainwater harvesting, for instance, where people can buy a tank and the associated kind of guttering and capture water. But even then, we don't pretend that this is a solution for everybody, right? That that the, the billions that lack access, certainly this is a solution for hundreds of millions of them. But what we see as those that are in extreme poverty and extreme rural areas, 
if we can free up the resources that would have otherwise be helping all the people in the urban areas, uh, then those resources can go to those in the most dire circumstances through subsidy-led approaches. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, and we're speaking with Gary White, CEO and co-founder of Water.org. And Gary, um, I wanted to take sort of a big step back because I think you've done a really great job of, of, of unpacking and painting a picture of you know the issue that we're facing, the innovation that you all are addressing. But one of the challenges I'm sort of there's a, like this extra pain point. So besides the social impact or environmental impact, health impact of of the of what you're doing, there's sort of this pain point of can philanthropy and government fix this on their own? And so talk about your background and how you you and potentially Matt Damon came to the conclusion that, hey, this sort of innovative finance or microfinance mechanism might be the way to go. Well, I think it's just by getting out there and talking to people in the field, you know, people in the villages and and understanding, you know, not really trying to unpack the problem and say, you know, is this really a challenge of drilling enough wells or enough philanthropy uh, or is it? Is there some way we can leverage the existing system? Because we just know, you know, this is a, literally a trillion-dollar problem. And if you look at all the philanthropy in the world, it's, that you're just not going to be able to do it. And so that becomes, you know, the whole necessity is the mother of invention thing. It's just like, okay, how can we, instead of, you know, cursing the darkness and saying there should be a trillion dollars of charity, let's go find it, we're lighting this candle and illuminating a market. And that's where private capital can come in and take over to complement what government's doing. Government is, by and large, putting the pipes in the ground, but getting that equal access to the poor is kind of how we nudge the system towards them. So I think we have to to look at it holistically and say, you know, how can we how can we turn the market forces loose here in a way that actually helps the poor, actually drives down their monthly cost. To, to get these services. And I'd love to hear a little bit more. You touched there on how you work with government or their role in this ecosystem as it relates to your business. What about philanthropy? Are you doing any work to either, you know, collaborate with them or to share mm-hmm. the lessons learned from the 16 million users you have? Sure we are. In fact, I, I just returned from Oxford where I was at the School World Forum on Social Entrepreneurship. And that's a great opportunity for us social entrepreneurs to connect with philanthropists. And one of the things that, that we're looking at is the fact that, you know, the Skoll Foundation has, has like ordained or, or vetted, you know, over 100 social entrepreneurs. And there is just still a crisis of kind of scaling capital among those entrepreneurs and trying to figure out how we can make this work better. I mean, the fact that we have the giving pledge, the fact that we have these uh, ultra wealthy coming together to to do more is great, but really there's a huge bottleneck there, right? The amount of money that's coming out of the giving pledge uh, doesn't seem to be commensurate with the, the level of wealth that's been concentrated there. And the fact that foundations only have to pay out 5% of their endowment every year when these social problems are going unsolved and when there's never been a number, a greater number of social entrepreneurs willing to step up and do the job. So there are some structural failures in the philanthropic community, and we're working to address those as well. 
So, you know, uh, following up on that that train of thought, so you guys are really working to, I guess, how I would put it, sort of grease the wheels of of the markets um, and or identifying those untapped resources. And you mentioned that you've been able to mobilize an additional $1.25 billion in, in sort of private capital. So... I guess talk a little bit more about that. What do you? How did you do that? Or like, how do you calculate mm. that number? What's involved? Right. And and how might we take it to other areas? I mean, you guys focus on water and sanitation. Are there other innovative finance opportunities around that? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so what we do is uh, use that philanthropic capital that we get from donors to go in and correct this market failure. So these microfinance institutions, for example. They might be lending for other things in these same communities, but they don't see they see the risk profile of lending for water and toilets as not aligned with what their risk tolerance is because they don't understand how the poor are already paying. And so what we do is we make 99 percent repayment risk doesn't sound (laughs) terribly risky. Right. So we do have the evidence base now. But when we first started this, we don't. And there's still a lot who don't haven't caught on yet. So historically, we've funded them to do the market research. We funded them to hire the water and sanitation experts. You know, we funded them to build their, their MIS systems. And that gets this market jump started. And then what they do is they go out to the capital markets and borrow money at wholesale, and then they turn it into the retail loans. So our grant capital of $27 million to do that has now allowed them to go out and source capital from the private capital market of $1.25 billion that goes into these actual loans at the household level. Fascinating. And Gary, I'm curious, are you seeing any satellite effects economically? So you referenced people being able to hold down steady employment because of the, you know, removing the time volatility of water. We've heard stories, certainly, in some base of the pyramid communities about uh, children being kept home from school mm-hmm. to do things mm-hmm. like fetch water, do wash, and um, you know other labor that this might help alleviate. What are you seeing? Are you seeing these economies shift? Are you seeing any job trends, gender trends? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we definitely see the knock-on effects of this, and we see that through our own research and also uh, through third-party evaluations that look at uh, the household level and what's happening there, what's changed in terms of health, what's changed in terms of uh, employment uh, incomes and things like that. And yes, we definitely see that. But I think that the biggest proof is just the repayment rate and the fact that this is a demand-driven approach. You know, charity is often a supply-driven approach. You know, like we're here to drill your well. And oftentimes you see very high failure rates with those supply-driven approaches. Nobody's going to take out a loan for a toilet or a water connection (laughs) if they don't think that's the best thing for them. And so we know that water and sanitation services are inherently good, right? And so uh, if people are taking out loans for that, uh, we do care about what happens afterwards. But that's kind of icing on the cake. Because we know they're, they're getting these services, and we verify that they're used for the intended purpose, but that we also know that they repay the loans, and this keeps going up. So the system is almost inherently a check on the, the efficiency and the sustainability of the solutions. And, you know, if we if we go on to the sanitation uh, sort of part of the conversation, and we think about the infrastructure there. There's not just water into the home, like with sort of fresh drinking water, but there's also water in and waste out. 
Is that infrastructure in place too, or is that a little more challenging than fresh drinking water? So that infrastructure is is really really woefully absent, and the you know people are often willing to pay for a toilet or some kind of system to like get the waste away from their home, but they're not willing to have it conveyed to a treatment plant and to be safely managed and treated. And that's, that's a huge gap. And I think that uh, we do see uh, us getting, especially as urbanization increases, right? I mean, just the, the health cost of having all that human waste concentrated more and more is a huge issue. And one of the things we're looking at are those small and medium enterprises that are working to develop businesses to remove that waste through tanker trucks and things like that until there can be the actual extension of the sewage pipe network to get to them. And we're doing that that financing uh, primarily through a spinoff that we did called Water Equity, which actually provides investment capital to those types of businesses. So right now, if someone purchases a toilet in one of these typical scenarios you're describing, the piping goes just far enough to get the waste off their property? Or, you know, what does the governance look like, laws look like in these areas? Now, what we want to do is, even with the partners that we work with, to encourage those systems to be septic systems. And so uh, the, the there might not be a pipe network to take the sewage away, but these, these you know, underground concrete containers uh, hold the waste until it can be removed. They come through with these kind of vacuum-type approaches and suck that out. Uh, but that, that only needs to happen every couple of years. So that, that is part of what we're encouraging with the, the toilet loads. Or people are also just doing simple pit latrines. If they're not highly concentrated in terms of the slums, but there's some space to do that, they can dig a pit latrine, have a toilet there. There can oftentimes are two pits. So when one pit fills up and breaks down, the other pit can be used for the next two years. And then the initial waste can then be safely removed and, and used for fertilizer or other things. So, Gary, you know, when I talk to colleagues at like the Rockefeller Foundation or the OECD and the UN, you know, there's sort of this price tag that's around the sustainable development goals, these sort of global goals that the global community is trying to get behind before 2030. Um, And and that's like $2.5 trillion a year to achieve the goals. I think that number has increased as other calculations have come on board. And it sounds like you all are really doubling down on your sort of innovative finance strategy here. What does the future look like for water.org or through water equity? You know, where are you guys focused next? Well, we are focused at that level of impact where we can continue to multiply the number of direct partners that are uh, working at the household level. But we're also working at this from a higher level in terms of working with the World Bank, you know, working with the government of India, working with UNICEF to basically uh, take these models put them into toolkits, that put them into, uh, you know, materials that can be distributed so others can take up this model. And so you're right. It's, it's, it is a trillion-dollar problem to solve the SDGs just for SDG number six, which is water and sanitation. But that, that's the bad news, right? The good news is that these coping costs that I mentioned, uh, we did some math on that uh, with the Global Agenda Council uh, with the World Economic Forum, we did the math on that. The coping costs are between two and three hundred billion dollars a year 
for having a failed water and sanitation system. So it's almost like you just need to redirect those funds. And in that sense, the problem can kind of contain its own solution financially. Got it. And I guess just in the the last couple of minutes that we have here, you know, you have been recognized as a, um, you know, a premier social entrepreneur by folks like the Schwab Foundation, by the School World Forum. And for our listeners that are interested in starting nonprofits or social enterprises uh, or in- integrating impact into a business, what kind of advice do you have? You know, if they, if they, water.org is a major organization and they could, if they were able to ask you a question like, hey, what advice would you give me? What would you invite them to think about? So it's a great question. And it certainly is a question we get quite a bit. I think the first thing to think about is, uh, you know, are you trying to address, you know, a big social problem? And uh, is that problem kind of at the intersection of what would be a great need for the world and and your greatest passion? Like, what are you drawn to? For me, I was trying to figure out how to solve for engineering and social justice, and this is where, where I came. So I think it's first important to understand your passion and and the this great need. Then I think the next question that's very important is anybody else doing it, right? So I think that, uh, you know, there, you have to, to really give yourself uh, a rigorous kind of analysis to say, does the world need another organization as an entrepreneur, or can I work within uh, another organization that's doing this? And if you truly feel that people are seeing the point and you have an innovation that's going to, to be different uh, and important, then I say go for it. Yeah, and I love seeing the story of yours as an organization that merged because you're right. We, you know, we see so many nonprofits, social enterprises, et cetera, working in the same ecosystem. It is amazing mm-hmm. that we don't see the word merger more often. A merger and acquisition, for sure. Yeah. I think I think that's another topic we could definitely discuss on this whole show. So yeah. thank you so much for joining us. We've been speaking with Gary White, CEO and co-founder of Water.org. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.